Good morning, it's in WTUL New Orleans News and Views. It is 10 a.m. on Monday, April 27th. I'm DJ Mimi. Thanks for tuning in with us. We just heard Democracy Now!'s daily episode. Now we're going to jump into the April 2020 edition of TaxCast from the Tax Justice Network on healthy economies. Next, we'll get into Counterspin. This week, it is Diane Archer on Medicare for All and Siram Madhusudunun on fossil fuel accountability. Here we go. Thanks for listening. Hello and welcome to the TaxCast from the Tax Justice Network. I'm Naomi Pham. Wherever you're listening from, it's likely you're in lockdown like me and hoping for the best in this coronavirus pandemic. It's got profound consequences for us all, and I can't cover all angles in this podcast, but one thing's for sure. From the ashes of this disaster, we must build a better economic and socially just system that works for all of us. And tax justice is key, always has been. When it comes to our basic needs to be safe and fulfilled, we must make central to all recovery some of the ideals that we've lost, or that we're never there as they should have been. So, coming up later. It's about reclaiming the collective ideal and the idea that if we all get together and pool our resources and share risks, we will do a lot better. And it's about putting people in control of how services are designed to help each other, to look after each other. I talked to Anna Coote of the New Economics Foundation about universal basic services. And uh, I'm going to talk to John Christensen now of the Tax Justice Network for his take on this month. Okay, John, this COVID-19 coronavirus crisis comes on top of a global economy that was already struggling and hadn't recovered from the global financial crisis in 2008. There are some huge companies now asking for bailouts, including many who've been cheating on their taxes for decades. And uh, not just that, this crisis really puts in focus what's good value for money and what isn't in terms of who the state should and shouldn't rescue, right? I mean, it highlights how much shareholder capitalism is costing us. And the greater benefits we would have for our economies so clear if we were to use more cooperative models, non-profit models, social enterprises, which put their profits back into the business and their staff help make the long-term decisions that would go beyond the CEO's focus on minimising taxes, maximising their bonuses, raiding pension pots, investing little to nothing in actual production and innovation. And uh, lots of big companies have loaded themselves up with debt as a tax dodge strategy so they've got no contingency funds for emergencies so yes they're paying their staff wages that are so low and these are the people we're now recognizing as the backbone of the real economy and they're struggling to pay their rent and buy enough food to eat carers of elderly people having to go to food banks because all the extra money is going to shareholders Many of these same companies are asking for bailouts while still paying out huge amounts to these shareholders. There's a huge risk here that this pandemic is going to be a big opportunity for private equity to swallow up collapsing businesses and for monopolies to consolidate their power in the market. As we know, they bankroll politicians and top of their list is abolishing corporate tax and keeping wages nice and low. And we're seeing how these free marketeers all suddenly become socialists in a crisis, right? And often these bailouts are about saving the creditors 
as much as anything else. Some governments aren't even being transparent about who they're bailing out and how. Other governments are imposing certain conditions for bailouts. Um, So let's look at those conditions and let's see what we can add to them. Well, you're, you're, you're absolutely right that as far as the corporate community is concerned, the coronavirus has exposed an age of consequences. By that I mean that during the current coronavirus crisis, change will accelerate and we're going to see the consequences of failures of years and years of poor governance and concentration on shareholder value. Decades of bad decisions by the company directors and the big fund managers and other owners. We've seen a, a frenzy of share buybacks in the last 10 years with huge dividend payouts to investors, truly wild executive remuneration packages and as you mentioned, tax avoidance and tax evasion on a, on a colossal scale, and then the, the debt leveraging on an epic scale. And the end result of this bad governance of companies can be summed up in three points. The first point is that companies have been paying out to their shareholders and executives during the good time, and they just don't have enough capital on the balance sheets to tide them over during the downturns. The second point is the tax avoidance has deprived countries across the world of upwards of half a trillion dollars every year. And this has forced states to adopt austerity programs and cut back on expenditures, for example, the kind of expenditures needed to sustain a pandemic response during a crisis. So we've seen this in the past month in Europe and North America, and we're going to see this on a truly tragic scale in sub-Saharan Africa in the coming months. And it's important that we recognise that corporate tax avoidance and tax competition pushed by the big corporates has deprived states of huge sums of revenue and the consequences will be many, many unnecessary deaths. The third point I'd like to make is that many of the worst offenders when it comes to tax cheating and debt leveraging and share buybacks and so on, and not to mention the constant lobbying for weaker regulation and lower taxes and subsidies, are in sectors which are dominated by monopoly businesses who literally gouge their suppliers and, in some cases, their customers. And they're also generally weak on transparency and good corporate governance. Since the great financial crisis, company directors really have not lived up to their promises to act more in the public interest. So I'm not saying that now is the moment to allow all these zombie companies to wither and die, but governments must be selective about which companies they, they choose to support. And they should remember that some of the companies going under at the moment were failing long before the COVID-19 pandemic started. So you're right to say that uh, bailouts must be conditional. And from a tax justice perspective, we should stick to a principle that says no subvention without taxation. It kind of takes off on the the old American uh, War of Independence thing about no taxation without representation. We should push for no subvention without taxation. If companies haven't complied in paying taxes, they can't expect states to bail them out during a crisis. And in practice, this should boil down to three key tests. The first is if a company doesn't provide country-by-country reporting on its trading activities in all the jurisdictions where it operates, no bailout. Second, if a company has inserted one or more tax haven-based subsidiaries into its global structuring, no bailout. And and let's be clear about that. We must insist that the list of tax havens is not based on the weak listings of the European Union, but is actually based on the Tax Justice Network's Corporate Tax Haven Index. 
to set the bar at a reasonable level, we must further insist that any jurisdiction which scored 60 or more on the 2019 Corporate Tax Haven Index should be treated as a tax haven. The third and final point I'd make in terms of conditions, any company which has hollowed out its balance sheet through excessive dividends and executive payouts, or has burdened the balance sheet through huge levels of debts, or have used their reserves to buy back shares rather than investing new products and productive capacity, then again, no bailout. Just consider this one statistic to show how bad the situation. A quarter of the companies listed on Britain's FTSE 100 index paid out more than 100% of their new income during the decade from 2009 to 2018. That is the decade after the financial crisis. So they paid out more than 100% of their new income in dividends and, and so on, rather than reinvesting into the, into, into the company and building up reserves. So what's happened is the owners have been gouging the companies for whatever they can take, leaving companies with no reserves to cover this crisis or come to that, any of the other crises that confront us. Right, and it would be nice to see as well some extras put in there, things like inclusion of 50% staff on the boards of these companies, um, a permanent public stake in, in ownership perhaps, no firings, uh, a living wage. I'd probably add no bailouts whatsoever for airlines, rather counterproductive to the general interest. I mean, if, actually, if you look at the airlines, US Airlines now asking for at least a $50 billion bailout, paid out almost that same amount to shareholders over a five-year period. And five of the biggest airlines in the States spent 96% of their free cash flow on buying back their own shares over the last decade. And in the UK, the 100 biggest UK-based non-finance companies paid out more than £400 billion in dividends, and that's equivalent to about 68% of their net profits over the same period, and £61 billion in share buybacks from those same companies. We're going to look at shareholder capitalism in a tax cast coming soon. But let's look at how bad this economic crisis is going to be. Uh, There's lots of talk about a bounce back in the media and by some politicians, a V-shaped recovery. But that's really deluded thinking, right? I mean, how bad is it really, in your view? Far too many commentators, I think, have failed to grasp that we're not facing one crisis in 2020, but we're facing multiple crises, some of which have been building up for decades. We've got the coronavirus crisis, but we've also got the climate crisis. We've got a crisis of impending famine in many countries of sub-Saharan Africa. We've got the crisis of inequality across the entire world. We've got the crisis of massively overvalued assets, uh, shares, House prices, rental values, markets have overvalued almost everything apart from the key workers in the health sector and care sectors, paying them very low wages. Then we have the debt crisis, which has been steadily building up for many years and which by the autumn of 2019, and of course that's long before the coronavirus was first identified, debt levels had reached, um, we're talking here about global debt, had reached a staggering ratio of 322% to global domestic product. That's the highest level of global debt ever recorded, or by far a world record. So, so it's not one crisis, it's multiple crises, and there's an accompanying crisis of confidence, and I think this is pretty widespread across the world, in the ability of political leadership to negotiate their way through the coronavirus pandemic, let alone all the others, climate crisis and inequality and so on. 
So I think the idea of a sudden recession followed six months later by a quick recovery to pre-recession growth trends is fanciful. That's the so-called V recovery. Sharp down, sharp up, back to pre-recession growth trends. I think that's very unlikely. So will we see something similar to the long depression that followed the 2007 banking crisis? This is a little bit more likely than the quick bounce back theory of the people who talk about the V-shaped crisis. But remember that the recovery after the banking crisis almost entirely benefited only rich and super rich people. And the post-recovery investment into new productive activity was worryingly low. And the austerity programmes imposed in most countries made things even worse. So, for example, if you look at household uh, debt, too many people have too much debt and they earn far too little. And there's very little chance of this creating the condition for an investment-led recovery. Unless states finally and conclusively ditch neoliberalism and austerity and go all out to build recovery on something like a Green New Deal expansionary programme. But in my darker moments, I think it's quite likely that we'll see a much longer period of full depression, closer to what happened after the banking collapses in 1873. Now, what happened then was there was a dramatic collapse, full-blown recession, and then a long and very weak recovery over several decades, and that depression left some countries devastated for years and years. As you know, I'm from Jersey in the Channel Islands. That island was devastated by the 1873 banking crisis and arguably didn't truly return to sustained growth until after World War II, many decades later. And the same applied to quite a number of other countries in Europe. This could be a very, very long period of recovery unless we see a concerted effort across all countries and all continents. Okay, so... So it's bad. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, how do we come out of this then? I mean, we've seen already how governments in countries, particularly with strong currencies and central banks, can create money and use it in ways they always said were absolutely impossible. How can we use that? And how can we use this disaster to make sure we transition to a more healthy economy and planet? Right. Well, My worst nightmare is that the leaders in Europe and North America will try to impose the same medicine they used the last time after the banking crisis. More austerity, deregulation, corporate tax cuts, a general race to the bottom in social and environmental protections, all in this futile attempt to stimulate private sector investment. You'll remember that Einstein said that insanity involves doing the same thing over and again and expecting different results. Well, I'm not so confident that our political leaders have truly learned the lessons from the recent past and they might well try to impose austerity again. Your question is, what do we need to do to recover from this disaster and all the other crises that have accumulated and worsened in the past 40 years? To begin with, I think we need to recognise that global crises need coordinated global responses. And that should mean that richer countries support the poorer countries with protective equipment and skilled personnel and help them to build financial resilience around their healthcare systems, for example, by creating a workable framework of rules for tackling tax evasion and corporate tax avoidance. But if ever there was a moment to launch a truly radical departure from the neoliberal world order, this is that moment. 
We've seen states literally create eye-watering sums of new money to fund the healthcare response to COVID-19 and to bail out businesses harmed by the global pandemic. But in the medium term, once the risk of repeat pandemics starts to recede, we need a comprehensive shift to a Green New Deal. We also need to accept that services, health services, social care, education need to be provided on a universal basis across the world and not just during periods of crisis. And we need to tackle inequality through higher wages for working people, more taxes on wealth. We need to bring in a living wage, massively invest in building the skills of younger people to boost productivity. We need to push back again dramatically against the financialization that we've seen undermining the global economy for the last 20 years. For example, abandon all these privatizations which haven't worked, break up private sector monopolies, abolish private finance initiatives, programs. And let's recognize that we're in a crisis moment. So apply surtaxes, up to 75% surtaxes on the unearned surplus profits being made by the big hedge funds and the private equity firms who are cashing in at the moment, at this moment of crisis, and no doubt have plans to cash in even further. Now is the time to hit their model with super taxes on their, their super profits. I, I suppose my answer to your question is times of crisis require radical change. And the business as usual kind of rhetoric, which we're hearing in far too many cases, you know, the way things were was not good in the first place. Thanks, John. The coronavirus pandemic is showing us very clearly that there's a lot wrong with the way our economies and societies are organised. I'm talking to Anna Coote of the New Economics Foundation. Anna, you've written a book with Andrew Percy, The Case for Universal Basic Services. And what an incredible moment in history to have done that. The ideas in the book really do make so much more sense in these times. How would you define universal basic services? Let's start with that. I find it easiest to describe what universal basic services are about by putting the words in the reverse order. So we start with services, and these are collectively generated activities that serve the public interest. And then basic is about services being essential and sufficient rather than just minimal to enable people to meet their needs. And universal is about everyone being entitled to services that are sufficient to meet their needs, regardless of ability to pay. So that's what we mean. They're collectively generated services for everyone to enable people to have access to life's essentials. OK, and uh, some listeners, they live in countries already where they have access to health care and education free at the point of delivery. So how does the concept of universal basic services add to the mix for them? Well, in countries where there are already health services and free education, you would say, well, we'll we can learn from this experience. There's a lot of good in them. And there's some flaws that many of us are, are well aware of, but we can learn from and build on what we already have in terms of universal basic services. But we want to extend the range to meet other needs that aren't met universally at present. And these would include things like care, adult social care, child care, housing, transport, and access to information or the internet. And those are ones that we've identified, but we wouldn't want to say we would end there. Those are just some uh, where we think it's important to explore how we would deliver universal basic services to meet those needs. These are needs that everybody has, regardless of where they are in the world. 
but we're also challenging the um, dominant paradigm of political ideology, which is that people's needs can be met through the market. And we're saying, actually, no, it can't. It can sometimes be met partly by market transactions, but it's not something that can be left to the market to make sure that everyone has access to services that will meet their needs. So this is about challenging the way that we have learnt to think about how we get what we require to participate in society and to flourish. In the UK, we don't have a constitution, a written constitution, but many countries do. What do you think about protecting some of those rights, which uh, you know you would want to expand further than some people actually think of when they think about these things? What do you think about protecting these rights constitutionally? It's interesting that in some countries they already have put things to this effect into written constitutions. We don't have one in the UK, but Finland and Hungary and other countries have got it's written down that people should have access to the means of meeting their essential needs or words to that effect. Now, there's a huge difference, a sort of gap, if you like, between what's written into a constitution and what people actually get. But nevertheless, we regard it as a plus If you have a constitution that sets this out as something that is an aspiration or something that should be enforced by courts of law, even if it isn't already. So it's a step in the right direction, if you like. Yeah, you know, uh, universal basic services are often presented as expanding state provision of services to people. But uh, you talk a lot about it's more about expanding the ideal of the collective of collective activities, services provided through cooperative models, for example, non-profit models, community-owned structures, all these things which serve to democratise services, but also very much, it seems to me, excluding the profit motive from certain services because we've found that they don't actually always act in the public interest. Yes, and they don't enable people on an equal basis to access what they need. So, yes, I think um, it's about reclaiming the collective ideal and the idea that if we all get together and pool our resources and share risks, we will do a lot better. We'll certainly spend our money more wisely collectively if we do things together. And there are many ways in which we can do things together. But the state is not necessarily the, the first main provider, but the state has a very important role in making sure that things happen and that people have equal access to services. We can embrace a range of different models for providing services. It doesn't have to be the state or the market. There are all these other um, sort of social markets, if you like, in the middle of that, where you've got things like cooperatives. There are other models as well. You've got social enterprises and various other bottom-up community-based enterprises that can enable people to meet needs that they share. In each area of need, we need to take a customised approach. So you would not start working out how to meet people's needs for transport in the same way as you would work out how to meet people's needs for childcare. And similarly, you know, adult social care, for example, and housing. Every area needs a different approach. You would have a different mix of models of provision, different ways of funding. But overall, in every area, you follow the same pattern. And that's about 
everyone having access according to need, not ability to pay. It's about collectively generated services. It's about subsidiarity, if you like, bringing power as low down as possible, as near to people as possible. And it's about putting people in control of how services are designed. And there is a absolutely critical role for the state, which is a democratic state, and that is to ensure equal access, to raise and distribute funds through investing in these services, to set and enforce quality standards, and to then support and encourage a proliferation of different locally based models for provision and to coordinate services across the piece. So the state is not just a sort of top down provider, it becomes a facilitator, an enabler, a broker, the means through which services are available to everybody on equal terms. Right, and uh, we've seen how pooling collective resources is is a lot more efficient with things like the health service and things like that. And, uh, you know, we're in these times of the coronavirus. Some unprecedented things are happening at the moment. Never before have have it been so very clear that we need a big state (laughs) or that the state is the ultimate uh, uh, protector, if you like. (laughs) You've published this book just as this was becoming a, you know, a huge phenomenon. What do you feel about what the coronavirus crisis has done for people's understanding to broaden now in that area? Well, for a start, it's shown us how much we depend on each other and how we do rely on the institutions of the public realm, if you like, government institutions, state institutions, to enable us to look after each other. We do need something that is going to oversee the process in various ways. I don't think that this points to a big state. I think it points to an effective state. Well, let's call it an effective government that is able to coordinate the activities that we need to undertake to look after each other. And we could see, and there is a great deal of evidence about this, that the British healthcare system is much better than the American one. It's a lot cheaper and it's a lot more effective than the American system, which is largely, not exclusively, but largely market-based. I mean, I remember the 1990s and people say, oh, well, you know, we've had public services and really... If you just introduce market rules and market mechanisms, they'll be so much more efficient and everything will work much better. And what we have learned since then over the last, say, 30 years is that the market doesn't work. It works for some people. It doesn't work for everyone. And the whole business of meeting our essential needs is a, you know, question of market failure. Markets can't do this. So we need to have collective institutions and I think if we think in terms of collective institutions and the public realm rather than talking about a big state that's where we want to be heading for. I want to ask you about costs of universal basic services and I think the word costs is very very inappropriate actually because really we should be talking about what's the investment here and uh, if we take the UK as an example I believe that you've estimated the investment would be between 4 and 5% of GDP. So can you tell me a bit about that? Yes, well, that's right. I mean, it's very difficult to estimate exactly how much these things are going to cost. Yes, we are talking about an investment. So you're not just pouring money out. You're investing money, expecting to get 
a social and an economic return because if you keep people well and flourishing, they're not going to be using curative services. They're going to be at work and they're going to be paying their taxes and so on. So definitely, if you're investing in people's well-being, there is a return on that investment to society as as a whole. That's a very important point to make. And also, this is a preventative program. So it's not just about services to put things right when they go wrong, but it's about services that will enable people not to need curative services in the future. So that said, we came up with this figure that was based on some calculations that were made by a team at the University College London. I think it could easily cost more or it could cost less. The point is, it's affordable. It's within the fiscal bracket we can imagine governments spending money on for the common good. So it is affordable and it's efficient. You don't get the unnecessary transaction costs that are associated with market transactions. You don't get the inefficiencies that markets have introduced into public services. You have economies of scale. If you're involving people in how services are designed and delivered to themselves locally, then you get better quality services that are likely to do the job better and will ultimately cost less. If you were starting from scratch, then it would cost more, obviously. You know, we can do this. And indeed, when you think about the way that government is pouring money into trying to keep the economy afloat now, governments can always afford to do things if the political will is there. It's affordable. And it's a lot more affordable than individuals making individual market transactions to buy things like healthcare and education and housing and transport much, much more efficient. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and the returns on a daily basis in everybody's experience of living their normal lives are just so enormous. And also, I suppose we're keeping the, the shareholder returns whole aspect of that is out of it completely because uh, the money would be reinvested yet again back into those services so they just get better and better. Let's talk about free public transport, for example, which would be part of a a Green New Deal anyway. I wonder if you can talk a bit about that and how that expands this idea about universal basic services and how that would work. We regard transport as uh, one of life's essentials or mobility, if you like, that, that you are able to get from where you are to where you want to go. Um, within reason, but it's more than just saying everyone can have, let's say, a free bus pass, uh, because you have to have the buses. The buses have got to be there. They've got to, the routes have got to be well thought through and well connected. We're talking not just about giving everyone a free bus pass, but transforming the service so that it does work for everyone as far as possible. And then one could extend that logic to the railways and you know, with sustainability, which is a very important part of our approach to this subject. So we would look for the transport services where if you replace private transport with public transport, you're likely to get a significant gain in terms of carbon reduction and uh, you know, benefit to the environment. It is about ensuring that it's there for everyone making sure that everyone has access to it, that there's a good service and that it is available according to need, not ability to pay. Right. A lot of focus has been on the concept of universal basic income, which means many different things. 
And I find that whilst most people have heard of universal basic income, they haven't heard about universal basic services. So I wonder what your thoughts are on this idea of giving each citizen a regular income, uh, regardless of their own income, and how that works or doesn't work with what we've been talking about. Well, what we say is an essential part of the package, if you like, of universal services is a form of the income support system so that everyone can be guaranteed that their income will not fall below an agreed basic level so that everybody is guaranteed a minimum income, if you like. Now, that is very different from a universal basic income because a universal basic income, according to its mainstream definition, is giving money to everyone. And if you give money to everyone, you're giving it to people who don't need it. And then you've got all sorts of political dangers, I think. The price tag that has been put on universal basic income is massively higher than the price tag that's put on universal basic services. And there's a ideological danger about universal basic income if it means giving everyone enough to live on, regardless of whether they have money already or not, is that it says that we can solve our problems through market transactions, give people the money, and they're free to spend it as they like in the marketplace. So you lose the opportunity, if you're spending all your money on universal basic income, which you would be because it's very, very expensive, you lose the opportunity to invest in collectively generated services that are far more efficient, cost-effective, than simply giving money to spend in the marketplace. People need enough money to be able to buy things for themselves, and that's part of meeting basic human need. But you don't solve that problem through universal basic income. You solve it by developing a minimum income guarantee, which is a far more affordable approach to this, much, much more affordable, and then by developing services. And the more and better services you have, the less income you need to lead your life well, to survive and to flourish. Services are more, a better, a wiser way of spending our shared resources. I've been talking to Anna Coote of the New Economics Foundation. Her book, co-written with Andrew Percy, The Case for Universal Basic Services, is published by Polity Press. It looks at all sorts of successful universal basic service models, from housing co-ops in Copenhagen, housing being another critically important aspect of this, universal childcare in Norway, free buses in Estonia, and adult social care in Germany. Fascinating stuff. You've been listening to the TaxCast from the Tax Justice Network. Thanks for joining us. Keep safe. We'll be back next month. Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson, recording remotely. This week on Counterspin, the astonishing cruelty and cravenness of a profit-driven healthcare system is on full display right now. As persistent as the problem is elite media's evident investment in brushing off efforts to do anything more than just document and lament it. 
We talked about that in March 2019 with Diane Archer, founder and former president of the Medicare Rights Center and president of Just Care USA. We'll hear that conversation again today. Also on the show, climate disruption, the catastrophes it's causing and will cause, is another area where corporate media use words like urgent and action, but anyone who acts urgently, and specifically with regard to the fossil fuel industry, is dismissed as rabble-rousing and unserious. We talked about moving beyond agonizing to accountability with Sriram Madhusudanan, Deputy Campaigns Director at the group Corporate Accountability, in August of last year. We'll hear that conversation as well again today. That's coming up this week on Counterspin. Counterspin is brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. Before millions of Americans were unemployed, before COVID-19 began its sweep across the country and the world, health care was already a crisis. And the arguments against overhauling it were already visibly tired and specious. Here's Counterspin talking with Diane Archer in March of 2019. The March 11th Washington Post headline told readers that the Medicare for All bill, recently introduced by Washington Representative Pramila Jayapal, quote, reflects influence of hardline progressive groups, close quote. Not quite a hit piece, but something very like it. The article said a slew of groups further to the left shaped the bill which would upend health coverage for tens of millions of Americans and cost many times more than the ACA, which is why the Post claims, quote, to some progressives, this is a step or steps too far, close quote. Words like upend and drastically do their work, and at one point, advocates on the left are counterposed with most health policy experts. Supporters of the Jayapal bill insist there's a groundswell of grassroots enthusiasm for overhauling the country's health care, the piece says, without reference to any of various polls that would indicate precisely that. The thing is, public support for a fundamental change in the way we do health care persists, despite years of this sort of elite media treatment, perhaps because for most Americans, health care is not a partisan debate, but a crisis. Joining us now to talk about how Medicare for All would respond to that crisis is Diane Archer, founder and former president of the Medicare Rights Center. She is president of Just Care USA. She joins us now by phone from here in New York. Welcome to Counterspin, Diane Archer. Glad to be here. Well, can we start with just some basic information on Jayapal and more than 100 co-sponsors' Medicare for All Act? How, for instance, does it differ or is it different from the proposal Senator Bernie Sanders put forward last year? It's quite similar to the Bernie Sanders bill. It is Medicare that we have today only improved and expanded to everyone. And it's improved by giving people vision, hearing, dental, which is in the Sanders bill, as well as home and community-based care and nursing home care, which is at the moment not included in the Sanders bill. But otherwise, it's very much the same. Well, we know that the major theme of much media coverage has been how would we pay for it? 
And people have pointed out a number of problems with that framing, including its selective use. But it also reads like half a ball score, you know, Yankees three, because you're not hearing compared to what? what what's wrong with that way of putting things? Uh, well, a lot. Uh, we already spend more than Medicare for all would cost us, right? We already pay too much for our health care. We pay twice as much per person as people in other wealthy countries. Our system is incredibly inefficient. There is hundreds of millions of dollars in administrative waste because of our commercial health insurance system, a lot of bureaucracy and profits that uh, Medicare for All takes out of our system. And there's a lot of excessive pricing. Pharmaceuticals in particular cost twice as much here as they do in other countries. So just taking out the administrative waste and the waste excessive drug prices will save us so much money that even by conservative estimate, Medicare for all will cost us $2 trillion less over a 10-year period covering everyone and expanding benefits. And I should add, allowing people to see the doctors they want to see and use the hospitals they want to use anywhere in the country. When it's presented as, well, we're going to transfer the cost of health care to the federal government, for a lot of people that just means, well, my taxes are going to go up, and so that's going to end up costing me more. But the, the math you're doing takes that into account as well. Let's put it this way. Today, working people pay a bunch of money in premiums and out of pocket for their commercial health insurance as do their employers. And that money would go, instead of to a commercial insurer, to the federal government. Only it would be a little less than what, on average, people are paying. Businesses would save and individuals would save. So instead of the money going to the commercial insurer, it would go to the federal government. It's that simple. Well, the Washington Post, that piece I was citing, says that the Jayapal bill would overhaul the system so dramatically that summoning broad public support seems like a tall order. We can address that separately, but their point is that's a big reason that some groups are proposing more modest coverage expansions, such as adding a Medicare-type public option plan to the marketplaces. What is the problem with what is presenting itself here and elsewhere as cooler heads prevailing, a, a more pragmatic approach? I would argue that Medicare for some, as I call it, allowing some people to buy into some version of Medicare is less pragmatic. We have a broken healthcare system, and we have two huge problems we need to address. We need to rein in the excessive costs we're paying for our healthcare, and we have to make sure that everybody in America can get the health care they need at a price they can afford. And Medicare for some does not address either of those two huge problems. Medicare for all, in fact, does. It reigns in costs and it guarantees everybody in America health insurance. So Medicare for some is going to do very little to help the 29 million uninsured and the tens of millions more who are underinsured be able to afford their health care. 
Yeah, it's not as though because it's a half measure, it would deliver half the benefit. But also, in reality, I would think that half measures really aren't, they aren't easier sells politically. I think it's mainly pundits who think that the center of the road and, you know, don't really disrupt anything, that that's always going to be the most persuasive argument to people. Well, I think we also know from the studies that we have a majority of Republicans as well as Democrats who support Medicare for all. And the more they understand about Medicare for all, it seems the more they support it, right? The more they know that it involves the elimination of premiums and deductibles and coinsurance, that it adds important benefits that most people don't have today, like vision, hearing, dental, and long-term care. The more they see that it guarantees health care as a human right, the more support we have for it. And so I think a lot of this is helping people to understand what Medicare for All will do for them and to understand as well that our commercial health care system will never be something that they can count on for affordable health care. Yeah, I think that just knowing that if you or a family member got seriously ill or had an accident, that you would quite possibly lose every penny you have, you know, and many that you don't. I think that has a, a, a political impact, you know, like dead, it promotes a kind of caution and political quietude and even fear. And I, I can't help but think of all the energy that could be freed up if we took that worry from people, you know. Um, but the insurance industry isn't going to go gently into that good night. They are spending millions on lobbying and PR. And research that FAIR did some years back showed a lot of interlock among the boards of media corporations and insurance and pharmaceutical companies. They literally work together. As we go forward and as things heat up, what should we be on the lookout for as we see coverage of Medicare for All? What sorts of key countervailing bits of information would you have us sort of keep in the front of our mind? I think that the first and most important point is that Medicare for All is really not a new concept in this country. We've had Medicare now for over 50 years, and it works really well. People love it. People look forward to turning 65 and being able to count on Medicare because it does work so well, and that Medicare for all is only an extension of Medicare, a better version of Medicare, a less costly version of Medicare that will allow people to sleep well at night knowing that they don't have to be worried about the cost of their care. And I think increasingly Americans are seeing, if not themselves, the people around them struggling and making decisions no one should have to make between their health care and their kids' health care or their sister's health care. I mean, these are trade-offs that are unconscionable and unjust. Everybody in America should have the right to be able to see the doctors they need to see when they need to see them. And... That is just not the case today. And that will never be the case with commercial health insurance. Well, there are going to be, as they say, losers. You know, there will be people and industries on the short end of a change like this. And I think we just have to expect that they will be putting arguments out uh, into the atmosphere that, that suggest that there's something very wrong or very dangerous um, going on here. You know, we sort of have to be 
I guess, prepared for that kind of disinformation, right? And what's wrong and dangerous is, is that there are so many people dying and suffering in this country, tens of thousands of people, because they can't get health care. And I think if people focused on the fact that this is going on to an unconscionable degree in the United States of America, the wealthiest country in the world, and other wealthy countries are able to deliver far better health care at half the cost, they'll realize that we can do it as well and that we can do it and we don't need to rely on commercial insurance to get the health care we need. We can't rely on it because we can't get it through commercial health insurers. Well, how can people get involved? I mean, we have legislation now to look at. Are there other things that folks can do to, to make themselves heard on this issue? Always lots of things. Most importantly, they should be reaching out to their members of Congress. They should be asking for meetings, actually, with their representatives in Congress and telling them and sharing their stories with them about their struggles to get decent, affordable health care under our current system. It's broken, and they know it, and we all feel it, and it's unjust, and there is an easy solution. The infrastructure is in place to expand Medicare to everyone. We know Medicare works. It's tried and true. People love it. We just now have to move our politicians to hear us and to do right by us. We've been speaking with Diane Archer, president of Just Care USA. Find their work online at justcareusa.org. Archer's piece, Why Medicare for Some is the Wrong Idea, can be found on thehill.com. Diane Archer, thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you, Janine. U.S. corporate media can write long, compelling, prize-winning articles about the ravages of climate disruption. But when it comes down to it, they'd rather issue vague calls to action than place blame and name names in a way that would actually be useful moving forward. We talked about that last August with Sri Ram Madhusudanan. Climate disruption presents a test for corporate news media. Will they act on the understanding that a conversation that doesn't acknowledge that unprecedented measures need to be taken is an irresponsibly detached conversation? Will they vigorously expose the corporate actors, the fossil fuel companies and their executives who continue to dissimulate and deny? Or will they go on giving those that profit from harm-causing industries pride of place in the conversation about how to mitigate that harm? Corporate media's response to some promising state-level developments in climate action is not itself very promising. Our next guest will explain work you might not know about being done to push fossil fuel companies out of the way of climate justice solutions. Sri Ram Madhusudanan is Deputy Campaigns Director at the group Corporate Accountability. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Sri Ram Madhusudanan. Thank you so much, Janine. Glad to be here. 
Well, I was alluding to the Supreme Court decision earlier this year that cleared the way for Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey to pursue her investigation of ExxonMobil about what it knew about climate change and when it knew it, essentially. It was on the wires, AP and Reuters, but it didn't get the kind of major attention you would hope. But before you talk about that, The background for such an investigation, the need for it, is that the fossil fuel industry is just vigorous in doing whatever it takes to resist change. They're really quite aggressive and proactive, you might say. Absolutely. You know, I think this is the story we've seen play out over decades, really, when we now see the internal documents that have come to light. For example, showing that Exxon, as far back as the 1960s, really knew the extent to which climate change was going to be the path that we were on, the the modern kind of climate disruption that we're seeing. Almost a, a climate disaster happen every week, I believe, according to a recent UN report. So it is very telling that this is the path the fossil fuel industry has been on for so long. And when faced with a choice of doing a better thing in terms of advancing a just transition or choosing a path of climate denial and political manipulation, the industry quite simply chose to protect billions and billions of dollars a year in its own profit. And this was part of that Massachusetts Attorney General Maura Healey was investigating ExxonMobil. So as part of their strategy, they sued her. And that's the case that the Supreme Court refused to hear? That's right, yes. So the Supreme Court really refused to hear Exxon's bid for dismissal on the Massachusetts AG case. And, you know, just to back up for a second, Exxon has really fought tooth and nail against every move to hold it legally liable, countersuing up a storm, not just with the Massachusetts Attorney General investigation, but a number of different instances. And this is quite simply a tactic of delay and intimidation and an attempt to use their considerable resources to delay, distract, and fundamentally to obstruct this process. Well, Healy said that she thought the Supreme Court ruling might put an end to what she called Exxon's scorched earth campaign to block these kinds of investigations. As you're intimating, this ruling, it's heartening not only for Massachusetts, though. Massachusetts is not alone in this sort of investigation. Absolutely. I mean, this is a big win for other states, cities, and communities who want to hold Exxon accountable. We have an ongoing investigation and lawsuit from Attorney General James now in New York State, um, and there are a number of cities that are taking the fossil fuel industry to court. And, you know, this decision really does clear the way for Healy's investigation into what Exxon has known for over 50 years about climate change and brings us one step closer to finding out exactly what they knew and and what they did to cover it up. So it's having some echo effect in some sense. It was a state attorney general that brought the big lawsuit or one of them that became a biggest lawsuit against big tobacco, was it not? Yes, and there's absolutely a number of parallels to the history we saw with attorney general investigations into the tobacco industry. One, for example, is that as we saw with the tobacco aging investigations, part of the settlement in the U.S., particularly from Minnesota state attorney general, was to bring to light and release a trove of internal documents that really illustrated the true story of what the industry had been doing to cover up what it knew about the addictive nature of nicotine and cigarettes 
And similarly, we can see uh, really to what extent Exxon and others hid from the public the causes and severity of the climate crisis. And I think more importantly, when those tobacco documents were released and the truth of what the industry did was revealed, it really ushered in a whole new era of accountability and legislation to hold the industry accountable. And at the international level, at the UN, at, at the state and local level here in the U.S., people are similarly demanding accountability for the fossil fuel industry. And this is exactly the kinds of investigation and moves to hold the industry accountable and liable for its actions that we need in this moment. Yeah, documents make things harder to deny, even if they're things that, you know, seem like they're going on in broad daylight uh, anyway. Documentation is always important. And fossil fuel companies are kind of a big PR operation. You know, they do their own research. They offer these market-based solutions. And for corporate media, that's enough cover. You know, oh, this didn't come from BP. It came from the Energy Futures Institute, you know, or whatever, horse hockey, you know, to present that as like a valid position in a debate. You know, some people say X, Y, or Z. And I kind of wonder what it will take for extractive industry to be presented that way in the media instead of this kind of credulity that we see. You know, I feel like media has to take a turn in the same way that it did with tobacco in terms of the way it presents these corporate actors. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right there. Media has an incredibly important role to play in telling the story, and it shouldn't be understated. You know, we we cannot talk about climate change enough, and it's important that when we talk about it, we tell the story in the right way. So to one foreground, the fact that the industry has known about the severity of climate change for decades. I mean, I mentioned as far back as the 1960s, but a recent document came to light within this initial trove of documents from Exxon that showed that in the 1980s, they knew and had predicted with a fair degree of accuracy what the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere would be in 2019. And that's just astounding to think that before I was born, for example, that Exxon had known exactly what it was doing if it kept on this path of extractive economy and of climate disruption. And so media has an absolutely critical role to play in foregrounding who was responsible and that where we are today in a moment of upheaval and and climate disruption was was also a deliberate choice on the part of a number of incredibly powerful entities, corporations, and CEOs at the helms of those entities as well. Yeah, you can't keep bringing these folks forward as sort of credible actors once you know that dissimulation has been part of their modus operandi, it seems to me. It should affect the way they're treated as sources on these stories. Absolutely, absolutely. And then to take it one step further, to really address and to have a much more skeptical eye to the trade associations, which you mentioned earlier, that are driving their agenda, you know, seemingly under the guise of being nonprofits or acting in the public interest, simply putting forward, quote unquote, innovative solutions, when in fact they were set up for very intentional purposes by the industry to advance an industry driven agenda and to seed these false market-based solutions that at the end of the day don't do anything to actually shift the industry's business model, which is fundamentally at odds with the direction we need to go as a collective species on this planet if, if we're going to weather the storm, so to say. Well, a recent piece by your corporate accountability colleague, Patty Lynn, that I saw on Truthout reminded us that 
Under today's global power structures, the people who will be the most affected are the same ones who are currently experiencing the harshest effects of climate change. No wonder then that women, communities of color, communities in the global south, youth, low-income communities, and indigenous communities around the world have been developing just climate solutions that will address this crisis. What we need now is to move the fossil fuel industry and its backers out of the way so these solutions can be implemented. There really isn't a scientific or even an environmental response to climate disruption that is not a political response to current relationships of power, is there really? You know, that's absolutely right. And I think it's a really critical point to bear that there are very real solutions to addressing the climate crisis, and they're being deployed by people around the world and in the U.S. most impacted by this crisis today. Solutions like energy democracy, agroecological practices, ecological restoration to recover natural carbon sinks. And just in, in a moment, if you imagine where we could be today in implementing these kinds of climate solutions, if the industry had not for so long really stood in the way is it's damning when you think about it from that perspective. But absolutely what's needed in this moment is for the industry to, to get out of the way and for us to make sure that these real solutions that are already being deployed in communities around the world are given the, the center of focus and the scale that they need in order to really be the focus of a global response to this crisis. We've been speaking with Sri Ram Madhusudanan, Deputy Campaigns Director at the Group Corporate Accountability. You can find their work online at corporateaccountability.org. Sri Ram Madhusudanan, thanks so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. That was Sri Ram Madhusudanan, and before that, Diane Archer, both recorded in 2019. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the media watch group FAIR, based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website, FAIR.org. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thank you for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.